Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. This is part one of my conversation around stack testing and representative data with Gene Youngerman. Hope you enjoy it. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Today we're here for somewhat of an air topic, but also a broader conversation about representative data. And to help me with this conversation, I'm joined by my colleague, Gene Youngerman. And Gene's been helping companies with stack testing and collecting the best possible data suited for purpose for several decades. So we're certainly in the right hands. Getting a little more specific, we're going to start by talking about stack testing, the why behind it, the data it's intended to collect, things that companies should be aware of as they're planning for testing. And then we're going to branch out a little more. What data are we collecting? Why are we collecting it? And how should different types of collected data maybe be used for different purposes? So it's a broad conversation, but I think you'll really enjoy it because Gene's got a lot of information in his head. And with that, let's get right into it. First off, Gene, anything else you want to share in the way of further introduction before we get into the meat of the topic? I don't think so, Colin. Um, You know, yeah, I've been doing this for a lot of years. And I guess I'm going to start with, I'm a geek. I truly am. I love talking about data. I love talking about science. And I love solving those problems. And, and, you know, that's what we're doing now is trying to solve some problems. Good stuff. Thanks, Gene. Appreciate it. All right, let's start with the basics. Let's start with the very basics. What is stack testing? And if I'm doing stack testing, why am I generally doing it? Okay. So your stack test is, what am I putting out? And the most likely reason to ever have to do a stack test is that someone tells you you have to do it. That is, I have a permit. It says my SO2 limit is 12 pounds an hour. Prove it. Prove to me that you're not putting out more than 12 pounds an hour of SO2. And so I'm going to go out on my stack and I'm going to go measure SO2 and I'm going to demonstrate for you, Mr. Facility Owner, that your SO2 is within your either regulatory or permit limit, and that's why you're going to do it. You want to demonstrate that you are meeting a standard. That's the most typical reason. Gene, why is stack testing more complicated than maybe it either looks like it should be, or maybe for folks who aren't familiar with stack testing, why is it more complicated than maybe you would think it should be? So I have three quarters of a page of an answer to this question (laughs) because I've been thinking about it this morning. But, you know, it it sounds like a simple thing, right? You're going to go to this flowing gas stream. You you pull out some gas from it and you filter or sorb out the component you care for and take it back to the lab. That seems really straightforward, except that there's a bunch of things that are going on. One, there's process concerns. That is, is the stack gas today representative of the condition that I want to test and the condition I want to demonstrate? So there's a, there's a process concern. And, and the next piece is that the stack tends to be the very last piece of the, of the process. That is, stack emissions are the last thing in that process. And so everything from 
generation to scrubbing to cleaning to whatever all has to work right for the stack test to be representative. And, and that makes sense because nobody wants to poop out something that's valuable, right? And, and then the next piece is access concerns. Stack testing happens on a stack. <laughs> stack is not an office. A stack is it's a pipe in the sky, right? And on, the, on that pipe is a platform. And so somehow or another, people have to get up on the platform. We have to take people up there. We have to take equipment up there. We have to make this all happen. Okay. The next piece is that we're not necessarily sampling gaseous components, okay? If I want to go measure the concentration of carbon dioxide in gas, that's very straightforward because carbon dioxide is, I'll use the word solution. It's not quite true, but carbon dioxide is, it's in the vapor form and it's in the gas and it's uniform throughout the gas, at least mostly, okay? And so measuring carbon dioxide is pretty straightforward. I take some gas and I route it here. But if I want to measure something that's carried with the gas as opposed to in the gas, let's think about a particulate now. I've got a particle. It's not dissolved in the gas, right? It's just carried along with the gas. So now I have to figure out a way to capture this particle in a way that's representative, right? And the magic words there are called isokinetic sampling. And we can talk about what that is at some later date. But the bottom line is that I have to sample I have to sample at a velocity that matches the velocity of the duct, okay? So this is where stack sampling gets esoteric and it looks crazy because I have to manage a sampling system and my sampling system, the sampling system itself has a flow rate. I have to measure the stack flow rate at exactly the same time and match those to each other. And then on top of that, I've got at least two heating systems and a cooling system that are all going real time. And I don't know if I've done it right until I get out on the end because there, there are values that I can only measure as part of the sampling. I can guess about them, but I can only measure them until they're done. So I have to, I have to pre-know what the moisture is going to be, the concentration of water in the gas. I have to pre-know the moisture before I can even set up this entire experiment. And then I have to do all of these other things. I have to make measurements real time. And then I have to adjust my sampling real time to make that work. That's just sampling. And then I still have analysis and data use and setting things up correctly. And so it's, it sounds simple. It sounds really straightforward. But stack, a stack gas Every stack gas is different, and so the analysis systems have to be more robust to be able to handle all of the different kinds of stack. Stack gas from a power plant is different than stack gas from a, a paper and pulp unit, okay? And so the, system, the sampling systems and the measurement systems have to be robust enough to handle that change, and the scientists that do this have to be smart enough to know where they have to make the, the detailed changes. And then the final thing that makes this hard is data use. I mean, we, you talked about that a couple times, and, and every time you and I talk, I talk about data use because it's horrible. But you have to know the question being asked to make sure that you that you structure your testing correctly. And so we, we're going to talk about some of that in more detail later, but why is stack testing more complicated than it looks like it should be? 
because you got to get it right the first time because it's expensive and you got to get it right. And you don't know the answers until you've done it, but you have to know the answers while you're doing it and round and round in circles. Gene, let's get, I, I want to latch on to the last part and actually jump into data use a little bit. And you mentioned one of the complications being that the stack and the exhaust are sort of at the end of everything and making sure that the process is working the way that it should be to suit the purpose of why you're doing the stack testing is important. And it's, it's funny. We can, maybe we could talk later about all the stories that stack testers have of sitting there for long periods of time, waiting for the process to be running and come back up or whatever, whatever it is that, that that's happening. Uh, So we, I'm sure there's lots of stories about that, but I, so the question I have, and maybe we could get into some of these different lanes right now. You mentioned one situation that's the most common, which is I have a limit or a standard and I'm doing testing to sort of demonstrate that I can meet that standard. That's one lane of why you might be mm-hmm. stack testing. But what are some of the other lanes? What What are some of the other lanes of where folks use their stack test data? And maybe we can correlate those a little bit to how you'd want to be operating if that's the if that's why you're doing the stack testing, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. So uh, a, a quick caveat. I'm going to use the we word a lot. Yeah. Um, I was taught many, many years ago that the only time I was allowed to use the word I when I was talking to a client was if it was followed with the fouled up. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Other than that, we had to use the word we, both to describe my team but also to describe this this larger we that mm-hmm. is the stack tester and the consultant and the permit people and the operators. And there is a we to get, I mean, remember, the end result is still the report. The end result is the data. But without without a we, all, all it is is somebody's efforts, and they're probably not as good as they might be. Okay, so... You, I've got like four or five lanes as you mm-hmm. as you prompted. I guess I've got four exactly. Performance testing, which is where I started. Compliance testing. Do we comply with a regulation or a permit? Uh, how hard it is, how easy it is, don't know. But but do we comply? The second one is what we call engineering testing or investigative testing. My plant's not running right. Okay, um, I'm not meeting my standards. How do I fix it? Or or I want to run my plant faster, harder, stronger than I have in the past. And what ha- impact does that have on my thing? And, you know, it's, it's a management of change issue, if you will. The third one is risk assessment. We did a lot of this 20, 30 years ago where the EPA said, look, we want to know what's coming out that stack. And we want you to, you know, shotgun the methods at the stack. And we want you to tell us about, you know, 500 different compounds and what are the results? Uh, it doesn't come up as much, but it, but it's really hard because there's a lot of more methods. And then something that's come up a lot more frequently has been the EPA ICRs, the information collection requests that we've been mm-hmm. seeing lately, the, the 114s. Uh, we're working on one today uh, down on the Gulf Coast. And, and so that, that's the fourth one. And so, the, and so they all have different kinds of goals in mind. 
let's, let's go back to your performance testing. If I tell you to measure 50, then you're going to go out and you're going to use a tool that's designed to measure 50, right? And if you happen to get two, I don't really care how good your two is. I'm happy with your 50. And so performance testing, because we have a regulation, because we have a permit, we want to very carefully design our sampling, design our measurements, sampling, analysis, process operation to answer the question, yes or no. It's a black or white question. And we want to we make sure that the most robust part of our measurement tool is at the answer point. Okay. Um, risk assessment, on the other hand, is a very different beast because now we want to get low numbers. We want to get real numbers, but we'd like to get low numbers. And and the problem with risk assessment and all of all kinds of things like risk assessment is you end up summing up large amounts of non-detects because you go looking for things, you don't find them. Now you got to worry about detection limits and you got to worry about what somebody's going to do with the detection limits. And you got to come up with a bunch of rules, if, if, you know, on how you are going to sum non-detects and how you're going to impact all that into a risk assessment. And it's, it's a challenging kind of thing. The ICRs on the other hand, and I know I, I noticed that I just skipped investigative, but on the ICRs, EPA tends to provide, they look like mandated methodology, their guidance. Um, they're trying to figure out where they want to go with it, and they're trying to figure out where they want to go with the MAC. And again, you're looking at detection limit numbers and, and functionalities. And, and so they're just different ways of thinking about putting together your program. For investigative testing, what we tend to look for a, are very short programs, so you can get in and get a lot of data points. And if we can on investigative testing, it's really good if you can get things where you can get numbers on site, right? Because then, then you, you know, having a two-week delay while you go to the lab and get a number is hard. But if you can come up with some kind of indicator that tells you what you're doing on site, perhaps you can use that to hone in on something before you do a more complicated lab test. I think I went too deep there, but okay. Well, let me ask you this, and this may be an overly broad question, but I'll ask it anyway. From an operational perspective, I, I kind of envision maybe two different buckets of operation, and I'll connect them to each of your four scenarios, and then you could you could tell me if that's okay. you could tell me if that's accurate or not. But I, the two operational buckets I would envision is we're running a piece of equipment as hard or as fast as it can run or running it in a way so as to maximize the emissions so that we could show that even at those conditions, we're still meeting a standard. And I kind of say, okay, that's probably, that probably ties to a performance test. And and I don't know, maybe potentially to an ICR. And then the second operational bucket I see would be, we're just running the unit as it normally runs most of the time because we're trying to get representative data. And that seems like something that might apply to risk assessments, which, which I suppose they, they could also be short term though. So I don't know, maybe, and, th- and that probably also applies maybe to investigative. So I, I'm being overly broad, but how do you, how do you view the operational buckets and uh, am I missing some? No, I don't think so. Um, but operationally, you know, there's lots of parts. So, yes, for performance testing, you want to operate your system in a way that maximizes your emissions. It's worst case. And 
eventually, at least within several of the regulatory worlds, those numbers become a set of operating limits. And and the presumption is that if you've demonstrated that at, at seven, it's good. And if seven's a max, then anything below seven is fine. I mean, that's kind of the concept. And there are maximums and minimums, and there's all sorts of calculational stuff there. But yeah, you're very, you're very much correct. For performance testing, where you're setting outer bounds, you're setting an outer bound. And so you have to demonstrate at at the outer bound. And there's an interesting piece of that, which is that if you're not careful in subsequent testing, you will nibble away at your outer bounds as, you know, you, you can imagine that I had a temperature limit of 2000 and the next time I come out, you know, I, I need to be in compliance during my test. I don't get permission to go off permission. And so, you know, I do my test, my, my minimum's 2000, but I'm not, I don't get permission to burn below 2000 during my test. Now I got to burn at 2037. And now all of a sudden for my second, you know, year six or 10, my limit's gone from 2000 to 2037. Mm -hmm. And, and you can see how, if you're not careful about setting up your test plan and you're not careful about getting permission to be out of compliance with your permit limits during testing, not your permit emission limits, but your permit operating limits, you can see how you might nibble away at the edges, which is not not necessarily beneficial for a plant. Um, and that's probably also true for the ICR, because I think the ICR wants to see what are the maximum emissions, what are the worst, although I, some of the ICRs are trying to figure out a way to, to identify what the right operating permit is, not what the value is, but what what operating parameter they should turn into a limit, right? For example, on the delayed cokers, which doesn't matter, but the thing about a delayed coker is you pressurize up a vessel and then you bleed off the stuff down to a certain point and then you let it all go. And what they found was that the magic number was the final pressure under which they released. So if they let it drop to five, they got a lot less emissions than if they let it drop only to 10. Um, the risk assessment, you're right. It wants to be norm. It wants to be something that represents. They use, they use all sorts of weird words. They they'll talk about worst case normal. They'll talk <laughs> yeah. about. I, it's just, and I mean, basically, what they want to be is they want to be on the conservative side of average, right? Yep. They want to be somewhere on the con. You know, they don't want to be 0.5. They want to be 0.6. They're not going to make you run one, but you know. And the investigative testing is different because for the investigative testing, usually you're outside of a permit scenario. It may be you're bringing out a new piece of equipment, or it may be that you're trying to come up with an entire new regime of management. And so depending on your, your permit language, that one's usually totally outside. And, that's that, and that one, of course, because it's very interactive – with whatever piece of equipment is operational, it doesn't really fit in your two buckets. That's one yeah. where we're fiddling with. I will, I will point out that one of the things that happens with investigative testing in particular is because they like to get lots of data quickly. I think that many plants are too aggressive about going fast and they don't get, they don't get the system flat. So that the, the next second step and third step and fourth step aren't necessarily representative of the newer condition. 
this great big hunk of steel doesn't turn on a dime. And so, you know, while I can turn around my stack testing in an hour, they can't necessarily change. Even if they change the settings, they're not changing the operation inside that big box in an hour. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Something that popped into my mind, Gene, as you were going through that, I was just curious about it, thinking about different types of operations. Have you run into things like, you know, I've seen turbine permitting uh, and modeling that has to be run at a whole variety of operating conditions from startup to shutdown to low load to high load. Do you see, have you been involved in a lot of that where stack testing has to filter into things like that? Or is that less common than maybe I think? I think it's actually as common as you think. It just wasn't in my experience. Okay. Um, the work, the work that we did, the work that I got involved in, tended to be the very complicated, uh, comprehensive performance tests. It was hazardous waste incineration. It was the demilitarization incinerators. Um, it was the risk assessments, and those didn't have as many operating scenarios, but there are a lot of systems where they talk about low-level, high-level, starting, mm-hmm. stopping, in, out, and, and yeah, it, it yes. I mean, I've looked at a lot of data like that, but I haven't been involved in a lot of that work. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So there are some situations that are really layered. Um, I want to stick with data, Gene, before we even get into – maybe stack test reports and things like that, because I feel like we're on a good thread. So so we've talked about some of the different lanes, some of the different reasons you would collect the data, what that might mean, you know, operationally and just how you need to think about that data. And this is this comes up a fair amount because we do a lot of permitting and things like that where we're using right. some older data. So how do you view that? So the methods are pretty robust. They're pretty mature. And and I mean I my first answer to this was a really useless answer because I said the data are what the data are. But that's true. If the data were collected appropriately, if the data represent the operations appropriately, then the data are fine and they still represent yep. that unless the facilities changed, okay? Or unless the methodology has been shown to be flawed. We can we can imagine that we can imagine we went out there and and you know made this measurement you know with a with a Colin McCall analyzer analyzer Mark One and uh, you know and we got this data and it's great data and then Colin went back to the 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 garage and he said oh no the Mark One's got all sorts of flaws you got to use a Colin McCall analyzer Mark Two and uh, so the you know and and so we can imagine that kind of scenario. Um, that's probably not going to come up very much, certainly not in a compliance world. EPA Method 5 has been around for a long time. The The basic operational concepts and the base, basic how the general instruments work, you know, whether it's an oxygen analyzer, CO analyzer, total hydrocarbon analyzer, those things have been around for a long time. They're stable. And so that data is still valuable. Is it, is it worth understanding whether or not the performance of the unit has degraded? Yeah, probably. Um, but if the if the facility has been maintained, and if you know, 
all the all the nooks and crannies are still kept tight and all the you know all the all the valves are closed and all the seals are neat and so sometimes the incinerator maintenance and the level of effort that goes into that back end stuff degrades and so its performance degrades as well got it now that's helpful that's that's helpful advice and i mean everything's case by case but i think that's i think that's general helpful advice it kind of strikes me I know there are companies out there that have had to test for things like PFOA and PFOS. That one strikes me as something where methods might be changing a little bit, right? And you probably they need are. to be a little more alert. They are. Uh, so the, 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 the PFAS methods are very much in development. They don't know. There are methods. There are data. I expect that it won't be representative in four or five years as we as as the methodology tightens up i mean that's that's but that's like the only truly developmental method i think that that epa has in their books yep there's some Uh, there's some smart people at epa by the way there's some really smart people there well like we said it's complicated stuff so i guess you need to have your wits about you That was part one of my conversation on stack testing and representative data with Gene Youngerman. I hope you join us next time for part two. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.